La Boheme will leave no great trace upon the history of our lyric theatre, and it will be well if the composer returns to the straight road of art. So wrote Carlo Bessezio, music critic of La Stampa, after the first performance of La Boheme. How wrong, how wrong, and we know how wrong as we unwrap the third packet of tissues to mop up the tears. I sometimes think that Puccini's La Boheme is one of the two most perfect operas in the entire repertoire. The other, of course, is Carmen, and there's not one ounce of dramatic fat on either work. Each of the four acts of La Boheme has its own pace and timbre. The characters are fully rounded, the scores bound together with a handful of easily remembered musical themes, and well done, this opera could make a stone weep. There are, of course, two Bohemes with librettos carved out of Seine de la Vie de la Bohème, Scenes from Bohemian Life, a collection of stories by Henri Merguet published in 1851 and set in the Latin Quarter of Paris in the 1840s. In 1893, Ruggiero Leoncavolo was at work on a version of La Bohème that he hoped would be a hit to match his own one-act opera, Pagliacci. At this stage, Puccini was thinking of an entirely different subject for his next opera from a story by the Sicilian writer Giovanni Verga called The She-Wolf. Then Leon Cavallo and Puccini met. And Puccini, who was nothing if not competitive, set to work on his version of La Boheme with the two librettists who'd helped to make his name with Manon Lesco, Giuseppe Giacosa and Luigi Illica. As always with Puccini, getting the libretto right was a tortuous business. First, Giacosa threatened to resign. Then Luigi Illica got the hump, declaring that he felt used, cast aside, taken up again, and once more shoved away like a dog. Puccini himself was firm. Illica should calm down, and then we shall get on with the work. But I too want to have my say as the necessity arises, and I'm not prepared to do anybody else's bidding. By 1895, the libretto in four acts had just about been hammered out and Puccini had started to compose, but he was still demanding changes to the text. Then it was done. Later, Puccini would tell his biographer that when he'd finished the scene of Mimi's death, I had to get up and standing in the middle of my study, alone in the silence of the night, I began to weep like a child. It was as though I'd seen my own child die. And frankly, audiences have been weeping ever since the first performance of the opera at the Teatro Reggio Turin on February the 1st, 1896. And in the pit to conduct that premiere, the 28-year-old Arturo Toscanini. Well, we have a quartet of guests tonight to explore Puccini's opera and to talk about the production here at English National Opera by Jonathan Miller. Matthew Monaghan, the staff director here at the company, has been working on this revival of Miller's production. Joanne Appleby, who is a member of the English National Opera Chorus and who's covering the role of Musetta, will be sharing her ideas about the naughty girl of the story, who's nevertheless more heart than tart. And we're also joined by Richard Pearson, a member of the music staff here at English National Opera. But our first guest is Flora Wilson, who's a junior research fellow at King's College, Cambridge, a member of the university's music faculty, and who's written extensively on 19th century opera. Will you please welcome Flora Wilson? Well, I've mentioned Manolesco, um, but I wonder whether, in a way, La Boheme plays a more important part in Puccini's career. Yes, absolutely. I'm actually just going to remove this for everyone's sake. Um, 
Yes, the two operas are actually very closely intertwined. Um, without Manon Lescaut, I think La Boheme would have reached the stage a lot more quickly. Uh, Puccini was touring Europe, essentially, with his third opera, Manon, um, and so unable to get to work on La Boheme, much to Ricordi, his publisher's despair. Um, La Boheme is really, I think, his first mature work. Um, that's sort of the feeling of most of his biographers and academics who've since come to his work. Um, La Boheme... The season in which La Boheme uh, premiered in Turin, um, we should remember, opened with the first ever performance in Italy of Wagner's Götterdämmerung, Twilight of the Gods. And I think it's in that context <laughs> that we have to realise that La Boheme re kind of represented a sort of alternative modern opera um, for Italian audiences. So it was really groundbreaking um, in a season that they were already used to ground being broken. I've, I've, I've told briefly the story of the competition with Leon Cavallo. I mean, and, and the way I told it, in a sense, implied that Puccini was deeply opportunistic. Is that really what happened? I think it's relatively fair. I mean, this was a sort of a fairly major feud in the printed press in Italy. Um, so Leon Cavallo published, discovered that Puccini was going to be writing an opera on the same topic, panicked, and published in Il Secolo the... Uh, the organ, the, the newspaper published by his publisher, his music publisher, um, a sort of an aggressive statement saying that he was working on this opera, this was his subject, he'd chosen it first, he was already well on his way with producing the opera, and that he'd just discovered that Puccini was also starting work, but that since Puccini's work was evidently not already finished, he, Leon Cavallo, had the first claim to it. Um, Puccini responded, saying, I was entirely innocent of Leon Cavallo's <laughs> plans. I couldn't possibly know. But that being the case, uh, he wrote, uh, where is this? Let him compose and I will compose, the public will judge. And so this sort of comp competition was declared, essentially. Um, Can I just ask, do you think Ricordi, the publisher, uh, stirred up the competition? Oh, it was yes. great for the box office. Absolutely. No, I mean, Ricordi was a very, very canny manager. He was sort of one of 19th century Italian operas, great sort of marriage brokers and troublemakers, all in one. Um, he was, he was a, quite a handful um, and very, very canny in his manoeuvres. So um, I think he saw, he saw an opportunity here um, and it was one that he was fairly sure that Puccini, his sort of, his new protégé, was going to win. Um, and in fact, Puccini is recorded as having written to his sister after hearing of Leon Cavallo's uh, failure in Venice with his La Boheme, um, after Puccini's opera had premiered, I should say. Um, he wrote to his sister with a piece of really, I'm afraid, quite dreadful doggerel verse um, that plays on the, uh, the names Leone and Cavallo, the two bits of Leon Cavallo's name, obviously, which mean lion and horse in Italian. And he wrote, the lion is screwed, the horse is thrashed, there's only one bohème, all the rest is a lagoon. Um, something is lost in translation here, evidently. Um, but you get the point. He was pretty nasty about this. Um, and so it was really, it was a sort of fierce competition. It was a really, this time in Italy um, was fiercely, fiercely comp um, competitive in terms of getting works to the stage and finding a success. Why should two uh, late 19th century Italian composers be attracted to a story, a set of stories about uh, young men living in Paris at the beginning of the century um, uh, as bohemians. This is a really interesting one, actually. I think basically this plot had several things that made it a sort of surefire winner in late 19th century Italy. It was um, about 
um, urban, it was urban realism, basically. There was a serious amount of urban grit in this story, which fitted perfectly with the sort of verismo aesthetic um, then in fashion. Um, it was nostalgic for a time that sort of existed in the past to a certain extent, didn't necessarily exist as depicted in the opera at any point. And perhaps most importantly of all, um, it was about Paris. And Paris was this sort of really important imaginary, uh, a really important place for the sort of, for the 19th century imagination. Um, it was famously thought of as the capital of the 19th century. It was this city where anyone who wanted to be a success in any walk of life would have to go and prove themselves. Um, and so really it was a sort of triple whammy, I think, this subject. The, the other thing is, the, it's perfectly clear, to some extent, Mourget is writing his stories at a moment when the whole idea of how the artist is regarded in society and indeed what patronage should mean, whether it's individual patronage or that of the state, is changing. Is that something, too, that appeals at the other end of the century, when ideas about the professionalisation of the artist, um, you've talked about the kind of intense competition between these two ends coming into play, are they both mm. attractive because it's about how do we support the artist? Yeah, I think, if you like, there's a sort of similar situation going on today with sort of funding for the arts being constantly under discussion. And I think the end of the 19th century, there was a sense that um, financial things were changing, particularly in Italy after the unification. Um, the sort of the financial restructuring of the state, if you like, um, had meant that funding for opera houses was much more precarious than it had been before. Um, and it meant that different sorts of ways of running the opera industry were necessary. Um, and within that, the, the of the artist broadly conceived was more complicated perhaps, was less assured than it had been at earlier points in history. Um, I think, um, oh I've lost my train of thought, I'm terribly sorry about that. <laughs> let, let me ask about the two librettists, I mean we, we know that Puccini couldn't start a project without having fights with whoever's writing libretto. Oh absolutely. Um, one, one version of this is that he was actually a better librettist and dramatist than his collaborators, the other is that he just had this constant neurosis about what he was doing. Yes, I mean, I think the neurosis is closer to the truth, if we're honest. Um, there's been a tendency in Puccini's scholarship and among his biographers to really sort of um, idealise the figure of the composer. Um, I think the truth is much closer to um, the fact that Puccini had to really work in order to compose. It, it was not easy for him all the time. Producing an opera at this point in the century was no mean feat at all. Um, so much had changed, as I was saying, in operatic culture, in fact, that um, it really was quite a sort of challenge to produce in these circumstances. Um, yeah, I think that's... And, and the big thing that they change is, is that not that Mimi dies, but the manner of her death. How does she die in the Morger? So in Morger, um, she actually dies alone in a hospital. Um, now, this is not promising for opera in general, in the sense that <laughs> it's good for operas to end with a big ensemble moment, generally speaking. That has proved successful for bringing the curtain down with everybody clapping or weeping, as you were saying. Um, so um, this is one of the few cases um, in the adaptation of Mourger's novel um, into the libretto, that the librettists actually turned to a play that had been created by Mourger and um, a playwright called Théodore Barrière um, in 1849, after the novel had come out in Paris. Um, and they actually used the play's ending, which sees um, Mimi return to Rodolfo at the end mm. of the play um, and die surrounded by her friends, which is both more pathetic as a situation, there's far more pathos, it's far sadder, you can have people's reactions, um, and also far more suited to opera. I'm, I'm oddly moved by Puccini's own 
comments to his biographer about him weeping after his vision. But I'm not sure I believe it, but he clearly was deeply moved by what happens yeah. to this girl. No, absolutely. I mean, there are tears all over the shop in the Puccini biography. Um, he, he barely stopped weeping, it seemed, <laughs> when he was working on the end of this opera, and everyone else <laughs> wept too. Uh, the librettists are both uh, recorded as weeping at one point or another. It's clearly part of this sort of basic idea of the effective power of opera at the end of the 19th century. But yes, I mean, Puccini obviously felt for his heroine. That said, um, the Mimi that we see in La Boheme is a far more sympathetic character than the Mimi of Morger's novel, or indeed the play. Um, and as the librettists explained in the preface to the libretto, um, their Mimi is actually a merger of two characters, only one of which is Mimi, um, of, is Mourger's Mimi. Um, and that was really a way of them making her more sympathetic to audiences, making her a sort of warmer, um, much, much gentler, much more innocent character, and also as a way of distinguishing her from Musetta, which was really the problem um, that Leon Caballo had, um, basing his opera much, much more closely on the novel. That's very interesting because such is the, the, the appeal of these characters and such, of course, inevitably is the power of, of melody in this opera that we forget just how artfully it's constructed round a, a series of contrasts. I mean, it's, it's the two boys, Rodolfo uh, and Marcella, but it's also the two girls. And in this production, which we can see uh, scenes on the television here from, for example, having Andrew Shaw play both the lover at the Café Momus and playing the landlord, Benoit, again reminds us the whole thing is carefully built round these Oppositions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's an enormous amount of skill has gone into constructing this opera. I mean, part of the thing with the, the sort of episodic nature, which is where the contrasts come from, um, I think, is actually from the fact that Mauger's novel, I mean, we call it a novel, but it was actually 23 episodes. So it was all sprawling, dramatic material there. Um, and from that, the librettists and Puccini, of course, all working together, were able to construct something where contrast is really what sort of drives the opera along to a certain extent. It was also what caused the big problems, I think, with its early reception. Um, Christopher's already given you one example of a critic who dismissed the opera outright. I'll give you another quickly. Um, a, another librettist telegraphed um, after, after attending the premiere to say, Bohème failure will not make the rounds. Um, <laughs> so again, you know, the, the early history of this opera is full of sort of now quite funny um, misfires, basically, from critics. And what they were worried about about was the fact they didn't feel this opera really hung together. They didn't sense any real unity within it. It was too fragmented for them. Um, and I think nowadays that's where we see its value in a, certain, in a certain way. And that, yes, there is a lot of sort of dramatic energy. I mean, this is an opera that really... Um, really moves along in many ways. And it's moved along precisely by those sorts of differences, the tensions within it. Laura Wilson, thank you very much. You'd stay You're with welcome. us, please. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. We're joined now, ladies and gentlemen, by Joanne Appleby, who is a member, as I've said, of English National Opera Chorus and who's covering the role of Musetta, and by Richard Pearson, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. Joanne, welcome. Um, tell me, who is Musetta? Is she more than just a good time girl? I think so. Well, she's... Oh, there we go. She's a, an artist. She's a singer. Um... So um, I think she's used to the finer things in life because she performs to the higher echelons of society. Um, yeah, she's got different dimensions to her character, certainly, and we see that through the course of the opera. And have you created the story, a backstory, as we must now call it um, for her? Do you imagine what she was doing three years before we first meet her? 
I think it's quite similar to real life, actually. She's, she might have sung in an opera house or she might just be a jobbing singer in, in clubs and this and that. Um, she's had a, I think she's probably had a series of, of richer lovers because this job, um, it, it puts you in the line, it, it, it puts you in a position where you do meet those kind of people, perhaps an older gentleman who likes a young, quite interesting character on his arm. Um, but I think Marcello, the backstory for me anyway, Marcello's an on and off boyfriend who she's truly in love with. She might have met, you know, she's, she met him early on and um, she, can't help, she, she can't help herself. She keeps going back to him. I always have a sense too that in a way, you know, the, 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 the wealthy old man on her arm who's allowed, allowed to put their hand on her knee perhaps just occasionally, um, nonetheless provide money that it finds its way back to the Bohemians, you know, um, in a way she's kind of supporting them. Yeah, it funds her lifestyle and yes, some of it probably filters back to Marcello eventually. Why that sounds really seedy though, I don't <laughs> think it's quite... No, I'm not sure. I'm, yeah. No, no, the nicest, <laughs> the nicest possible way. In the nicest possible way, I don't think... Again, for for me doing this role, I don't see her as a as a a tart. I think she's flirty, and I think she perhaps makes promises to people, but I don't think she follows through that often. Why is she so deeply and obviously moved by Mimi's plight in the last act and by the death too? I mean, she she prays in a way that always moves an audience. Well, like you're saying, the, the, the story, we see kind of three chunks, don't we? And I think a lot happens in between those chunks that we see. And I think um, we know that Musetta meets her for the first time in the cafe at the beginning. But a lot happens before we see her die at the end. And they do become great friends. And I think anybody would be moved in that situation. What are the vocal challenges for, for Musetta? What does Puccini lay out that's, uh, to be climbed? Um, it is challenging because at the beginning, she's angry a lot of the time. In a, in a, in a very flouncy, fun way, she, she pretends to be angry in the cafe because she's trying to win Marcello back. She comes in to the cafe with her older gentleman and um, sees Marcello there and makes a big drama um, to win him back. She just wants his attention again when she succeeds. Um, so that's all very high. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's high and athletic, shall we say. And then later on, um, towards the end, when we see the warmer side to her personality and when she's moved by Mimi to the prayer, that's really quite low and middly in the voice and demands a more kind of lyric... I, I scarcely need to ask you what you and Richard are going to perform, do I? Just, just <laughs> well, she's us. only got one song. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I'm going to sing the, um, the, the, the song that she sings when we first see her in the cafe. Thank you. Musetta's Wolf Song.
Joanne, thank you very much indeed, Richard, too. Richard, um, this is not the first time you've worked on La Boheme. No, I've slightly lost track, actually. I've worked on it three times here, and I think twice, if not three times, at Scottish Opera, so... And, and when you open the score each of those times, what, what jumps out at you about this work? Um, well, I'm always delighted to work on Bohem, and I can remember that when I was first getting to know it years ago, and I was listening to it and playing it, two main things made an impression. Um, first, at the risk of being a bit glib, it's one of the most beautiful operas ever written. You know, the, the, uh, the playful music for the four boys is just sheer delight. The love music is classic in all opera, and, and, the, and the tragic music, similarly, um, it's just one of the best. Um, but the other main thing that made an impression on me, on me was quite how hard it is to play on the piano. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't get any easier. Just to give you a, a clue, if I, um, um, an idea I made from a bit of Act One, there's this passage. Um, <laughs> for something like 15 years, and I still make a mess of that bit. <laughs> that immediately suggests that, 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 that something that we, we should remind ourselves of what an extraordinary orchestrator, how wonderfully Puccini manages to use the orchestra in this opera. Absolutely, yes. Um, no, he second to none in terms of orchestration, at least for the Italian composers, to my mind. So is there a sense in which, which also we are guided through the whole piece by a series of very carefully positioned melodies? They're identified with characters, with moments, and then we follow our way through the score because we keep hearing them. They're not exactly Wagnerian leitmotif. They don't develop orchestra, but they're there just to remind us what we ought to feel at any moment. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it's worth saying, at the risk again of stating the obvious, that... Uh, Puccini's melodies, he, he had melody to burn. I mean, he had to work at it, clearly, but... Um, and he, he did a mixture of using melodies again and again, but also there are lots of places in the score where you suddenly get a tiny little aria, so to speak. I remember David, who's playing Rodolfo um, and singing it absolutely wonderful, saying in rehearsals, that's what he just loved about the, uh, the role, uh, quite apart from the famous arias. There's a moment in Act Two where he suddenly has this tiny little... Aria et. I'll play it for you now. You'll hear it sung beautifully later. It's just this glorious outpouring when um, Rodolfo's enthusing to his friends about me, me. And we never hear that tune again. It's just gone. Whereas... Um, some of the tunes, particularly from Rodolfo's aria in Act One and from Mimi's aria, of course, do come back again and again. Possibly the, one of the most famous arias in all opera, Your Tiny Hand is Frozen, as it's commonly known, um, we hear a lot. And also the big theme from his aria. <laughs> be very easy to be won over by a theme like that, I think. Um, comes again and again, and Mimi's... 
and also the these just beautiful little melodic hooks that Puccini wrote, which come again and again. They're also unmistakably Puccinian. Whether that's because we know them, or is there something distinctive about the colour that he invests these melodies with? It's everything. It's, um, I mean, if you take the melodies themselves um, and take away the harmony and the orchestral colour and the text, they're often quite prosaic. Sounds like nothing. It sounds like a piano exercise, but give it this harmony. And then played on shimmering strings and with the wonderful text. You've got something extraordinary. Um, but I'd just like to give you an example of one theme. Yes, he doesn't vary his themes much. They just come back. But there's one wonderful example of a theme which he does vary. Uh, when we first meet Shonar in Act One, he comes on to this wonderful, uh, playful, joyful music. have wrong notes in it. Um, um, but then we hear it again, very poignantly in Act 4, when Mimi is dying, and she's come back to Rodolfo, and the, his, Rodolfo's friends are thinking what they can do to help in this terrible situation. Colline decides to sell his beloved overcoat just to get a few more pennies. Um, and as he's going out of the door, he says to Shonar, look, you should leave the two of them alone. Leave Rodolfo and Mimi alone. And as they go out of the door, we hear his jaunty theme slowed down and there's something so touching about it. And then it goes into Rodolfo's theme. transformation of Schoenard's music, I think there's something really very special about that, dramatically and musically, very touching. I, I was going to ask you why we're so affected by Puccini's music, but you've just demonstrated. <laughs> it is quite extraordinary. I mean, it has a kind of power that is both dramatic, but also in its own has this extraordinary kind of beauty to it, too. It's Absolutely. a combination of the two bands. It is, and, and, um, and also he, he, he represented the perfect synthesis of music and drama. He knew exactly the places to change the orchestral texture. Um, again, one of the most famous examples possibly is act, in Act One, when uh, the four boys have had all their banter and three of them have gone off, leaving Rodolfo on his own to write. And all the music up to then has been staccato, playful, fun, uh, slightly playfully violent. Um, Rodolfo's left on his own and there's a little sort of bird-like flute melody. Then he puts his pen down and says, this is hopeless. And then at one of the most famous moments in all opera, there's a knock on the door and we get, which I can't recreate on the piano, of course, this wonderful sustained string chord. It's such a simple device as we hear the knock on the door and he says, who is it? And it's a girl and so on. And it's clear from the orchestration, something special is about to happen. Everything's been leading up to this point dramatically. And he just does that by changing the texture. He knew when to do that. Richard, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Listen, our last guest this evening is Matthew Monon, who worked 
on this revival of Jonathan Miller's production. Would you please welcome Matthew Monahan. Matthew, was this a production that you knew well before, before you started work on this revival? Uh, yeah, it was a production that I saw when I was at university um, on its first revival um, in 2009. I got the um, Oxford Tube here from Oxford and saw it. Um, and then I worked on it the last time we did it here. Um, and and, and what, can you remember what you liked about it when you came up from Oxford on the bus? <clears throat> Yeah, I liked Act Three. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's a rare thing because that's the act most of us found quite difficult to begin with, don't you think? Um, I think it's one of the most perfect pieces of dramatic writing, Act Three. Um, it kind of rivals Act Two of Tosca, I think. So I don't know. I don't find it difficult, really. <laughs> um, and, and, and what what did you think then, and what perhaps do you still think are the strengths of this production by Jonathan? I think there's a few things. I think the, the thing that he would say is that um, he's a doctor, so he knows how people die. <laughs> um, so the death is very important in this production, that it's real, and that we see her die, and literally how you die. Um, and we see the process of the, the breath, um, and people have these breaths that come and go when they die, apparently. Um, um, so that that's kind of important, but I think um, having worked on the show last year and then coming back to it, the real strength of it is that, and this is part of Jonathan's philosophy about directing, is that it's real, and that means that while someone else is having a life crisis, someone else is having fun somewhere else. Um, and that that's kind of the profundity of the production, is that, for example, um, in Act 4, um, we see Shannar collapse, um, and we suddenly realise that he has feelings for Mimi and he's devastated, whilst Rodolfo is left alone with Mimi. So we get the sense of people living these emotional lives that are slightly disconnected from each other, but are linked by a common story. Um, I think that's the strength of it, actually. Um, what yeah. about moving it up to Paris in 1930, uh, the period of the photographer Pierre Brassai, a period of, of all sorts of political unrest, but also a period in which, you know, there's a kind of strong visual set of images from the films of Marcel Carnet, for example. I mean, do you think that works all, all the way? Yeah, I think it, it works because um, as an audience, we, we can read the costumes um, because um, 1930s is kind of that part of our consciousness. So we know, we understand social class, what that means. Um, in a way, perhaps that the audience in, 19, in, you know, in early 1900s would have understood Bohème looking back 50 years um, to, when, to when Bohème is set, which is 1850. So there's a kind of similar time lapse. It's a bit longer now, of course, to 1930, but it's a similar thing. But I also think a sense of economic depression, you get the sense of being on the cusp of something. It's about being young, so these men might go off and um, fight and die in the Second World War. Um, so I think there's a kind of, something is shifting historically, and I think that's important, um, possibly because it's about being young and you, you experience time in a, in a different sort of way. Does and the case of Mimi's being young and dying young too, which yeah. is a, such a potent idea. Yeah, tragic. <laughs> um, what exactly does, does, does a, a director who returns to, re, to revive a production do? What, I mean, what, just take us through what your principal tasks are when you return. 
Um, well, Natasha, who revived Bohem. Um, this is Natasha Metherall. Natasha Metherall, yeah. Um, she is very faithful to Jonathan and his ideas um, and what the show um, was originally. But at the same time, you know, directing is about collaborating ultimately, um, regardless of, of um, the set that you have. And I think it's also about working with the artists and getting the best performances out of them, working with the conductor, working with the music staff to achieve um, something new and vibrant, as well as something that is faithful to the original vision. Um, I think sometimes revival directors improve things. I think that's part of the job. Um, and I think, in a way, productions transform over time, and that's not a bad thing, because if it is exactly the same blocking that we did, you know, it's not real. That's very interesting. Is, is the way to think about it really as a new production? This just happens to be inhabiting um, a space and part of an old production. I mean, do you need to think what you're really doing is starting all over again, but quite a lot of the work's been done? Um, yes, I think it depends on the remit. I think um, different companies have different policies with revivals, depending on what the show is, depending on um, who made it. Um, and, I th and, and I think it really depends. Some people just say, oh, here's the set, do what you want. Other other. Um, people will, it'll be much more like the director is there at a back press to ring up, to talk to, to be in stage rehearsals, that sort of thing. So it really kind of depends. There's not really a blueprint. I think on this, um, Natasha is very faithful to, to Jonathan, and which is good, actually. Is there a great book? I've often wondered this, the kind of the book of the, of the production in which everything is carefully recorded, they kind of notate it. Yeah, that's kind of what I do, <laughs> or supposed to do, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's going to be there for the next revival? <laughs> yes, if I manage to make it look okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and or what kind of changes have you made? I mean, I'm, I mean you've said that there's a sense of a good, a good revival being organic, it grows out of what's been there and goes perhaps somewhere else. What, what have you added? I mean, I, to give you one example, I mean, I, I noticed for the first time in this production in the Café Mumu scene, there's a, a wonderful, uh, I use the word slattern, but she is really, with her stockings around her ankles, who's clearly had much too much to drink. She looks a little like the kind of famous absinthe drinker. Uh, too much lipstick hasn't quite hit her mouth, but most of her ear. Um, now, was this something you added or was this here already? That was there last time we did it. Um, I know when they made it originally, the chorus stuff was a lot more general. Um, and there was less specific, kind of specific character work being done. And then Natasha took it to Canada, um, and then she redid a lot of the chorus work there, and then gave a lot of those ideas to the chorus here, and then that changed a lot. Yes, it did. Um, and I think the main thing that really transformed is it's, she's toned down really the idea of rich boys slumming it, which was so important originally, and they kind of did a lot of mock um, posh talking, which Jonathan was very fond of. Um, and I actually think it's better if you just accept the boys on their own terms rather than as being rich kids who happen to be on a gap year, which was Jonathan's original idea, a bit like um, that film with Nail and I, who always talked about that. Um, but actually, it's a lot better if you think of them as artists who believe in the art that they make. They may be rubbish, but that doesn't really help you help the performance. <laughs> um, get into the sense that they believe in what they're doing, I think. And, and how, how, do you, how do you take that idea, which is really very different, as you say, from Jonathan's original idea, and, 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 and make us understand that they are indeed wanting to be philosophers, poets, painters, and so forth? What, 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 can, what do you do? Um, very gently get them to just play the characters <laughs> rather than adding superficial stuff on top of it, I think. Um, and I think it's about kind of really 
getting into the music, really playing each moment for what it's worth. You know, when Marcello throws down his paintbrush in Act Four and says, um, to help with this painting, really believing in that struggle um, and not taking it for granted that these people don't mean, and you know, believing that they mean something as people, I think that's what you have to do when uh, you're And when he, when he pulls the proof off, off, off the stone uh, in, in Act One, too, he's been rolling, rolling ink onto the stone and put his paper on it, he pulls it off. Uh, that, that was much more detailed than I remembered it being before. So he quite clearly was trying to make a print. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And we spent quite a lot of time working out how to do printing, <laughs> which, is, which is fun. So he's learnt another craft while he was here. Yes, yes, exactly. You've got a cast that has a number of seasoned players who've been in the show before um, uh, uh, and some newcomers too. I mean, is that, is that a problem when you're doing a revival, that you've got people who already think they know the, 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 the opera and people who are coming to it entirely new? Yeah, it can be a problem, actually. It hasn't been on this, but I've worked on shows before where singers say, oh, that's not what we did, what we did last time, and you sort of, you want to stop them saying that, really. <laughs> um, but not, not on this one. It's been really nice, actually, because, you know, I've, for example, worked with George von Bergen, who sings Marcello a lot, and it's really nice watching him kind of develop as an artist, and he's very, very good as Marcello, um, and seeing his acting change for a different role, improve, it's very good. Um, it's lovely to see Angel doing um, Mimi. Um, she's, she did Musetta last time, and, and it's interesting to see how she plays a different kind of role, um, having done something else. And then it's wonderful because you get, you know, opera so international, you get people from all over the world, and that, that's really exciting, actually. Um, it's different to theatre, British theatre, where you work with Brit a lot of British actors, but actually opera is kind of... It's diverse, and that's part of the charm of working in it, I think. Well, what Richard was saying a moment ago um, seems to me probably to apply to all that you do too, that everything you really need is there in the score. I mean, and if you just listen closely uh, to it, then a lot of what you have to do is there already for you. Is that true? Yeah, I think it's especially true with Puccini because everything is there, like the moment he touches... Um, her hand, it's in the score. The moment he finds the key, it's in the score. It's all there. It's so part, you know, dramaturgically, it's all in the music. It's different with other composers. Um, but it's very hard to kind of do mad versions of Puccini. It's interesting. You can't sort of, I don't know, set it in a brothel somewhere or whatever like you do sometimes when you direct. But, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to do with Puccini. You, it's, it's better to do a straight to version, probably. Um, yeah. Great. We have a little time, ladies and gentlemen. I wondered if any of you would like to ask questions. We have the celebrated pre-performance talk roving microphone, which is ready to rove. If you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up and catch my eye, and it can be to any of our guests here. Who would like to start? I love this English moment where we all look at each other and hope someone else will ask a question. Would anybody like to ask him? Thank you. In the first um, talk, you mentioned that um, the Wem um, was very groundbreaking. Can you expand on that a little bit, please? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I think um, Manon Lescaut was seen as a very Wagnerian opera in all sorts of ways. That was the opera that Puccini wrote straight before Bohème. Whereas Bohème, there is much more... Um, 
of a sense of Puccini experimenting with, um, at the same time that he, he wants to join up the musical forms, which we associate, obviously, with Wagner these days. So it's a very, very through-composed opera in that sense. But another way, um, as Richard was saying, um, these melodies sort of, they come, they rise to the surface and then they disappear again. It's sort of fragmentary on a different scale. And that was really very sort of, very, very modern, in fact, for the 1890s. Sort of kaleidoscopic way of composing, almost. There's this constant sort of circulation of melodic ideas. I mean, there's no doubt, as, as you said, Richard, he's incredibly inventive. You know, yes, he did have to work at it, but there is this kind of fountain of melody going through him. Um, he wrote one of the melodies, I can't remember which, I'm afraid, while on a boat on a lake. Um, this is recorded in his diary. I mean, they, he's sort of constantly producing melody. And that sense of constantly changing, um, that was very, very new. You're welcome. Another question, anybody? I think we've told them everything they need to know. Ladies and gentlemen, there is the production. Um, which you're going to see. All that remains for me is to thank you very much for being a splendid audience. On the seats that you're sitting on, you'll find details of the coming pre-performance talks. We hope we shall see you at some of those. And my last task is to thank on your behalf our four guests. That's Matthew Monaghan, Flora Wilson, Joanne Appleby and Richard Pearson. Thank you all very much indeed.